brought to you by Penguin. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Before we get started, we'd love to hear what you think about the Penguin Podcast. Share your feedback and you could be in with a chance to win a year's supply of audiobooks. Just tap on the survey link in the episode notes. Bob Dylan actually would kind of make me a little bit, oh my God, what am I going to say? You know, is it going to be okay? Is it going to be good? Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast, the place where our hugely talented authors select a handful of objects that have inspired their work. In this special edition, we handpick some of the best moments from conversations with our venerable guests. We've heard Sir Paul McCartney talk about imposter syndrome, Mallory Blackman on how she cast Stormzy in her TV adaptation. Sci-fi legend William Gibson recalls spending the afternoon with Mick Jagger. And Simon Amstel explains how post-it notes helped him structure an entire book. So please sit tight for pearls of wisdom from some of the most creative minds on the planet. First up, it's Nick Hornby who wrote About a Boy, High Fidelity and Fever Pitch all of which have been made into feature films. Now, as a Spurs fan, interviewing an Arsenal fan is never easy, but Nick loves football and music. He's a lovely man and revealed that he keeps something at his writing desk, which is a little more sedate, shall we say. Well, I have a jigsaw behind me as we speak. I've discovered rather stupidly late in the day that if you write a thousand words a day, which is good going, literally writing a thousand words would take you about half an hour but I'm here for six hours and so it's what you do in between each sentence or each half sentence I think that's the difference between sanity and insanity all writers have had days I guess where they've spent too long on YouTube or something similar and they completely kind of rot my mind and I get out of the zone and I found that jigsaws I can plod on with you don't get stuck You just sort of do them very gently. And uh, it leaves space in my mind for where my writing should be. Uh, So they've become a fairly essential part, I would say, of my working day. How many pieces? A thousand, never less than a thousand. Oh, my gosh. So this is something that under certainly the first couple of months of lockdown, I think the whole country started discovering what an amazing... Like Pac-Man, it eats up time, a jigsaw, yes. doesn't it? Yeah, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit of a connoisseur now, I think, um, on, on the jigsaw front. I know what's going to make a good jigsaw. Some of them are too easy, even at a 1,000 pieces, and some of them are just too hard. Do you sometimes try and be an anarchist and start from the middle and work your way out as opposed to doing the edges first? Oh, my God. I mean, this I say, I say, oh my God, because, no, it's not even blasphemy. It's like, oh, he just thought of that off the top of his head right now. It's like, I've never thought of that even. This is, uh, this is where I go wrong creatively, I think. They, are you not worried that they're taking creative energy away from? That's the thing. I don't think there's any creative energy in doing jigsaws. I don't want to be too pretentious about it, but there's a great writing metaphor about jigsaws which is you know you're doing some thing which is just an awful patch of meadow or tree or something and you think oh I'm never going to do this and actually 
you can do it as long as you look harder. So it's look harder, look harder, look harder. And and you think, okay, there's, there is a lesson in there. It's something that, that we should all do with our writing is just look harder. Wow. Nick's reaction when I suggested he could begin a jigsaw from the middle was priceless. Nick was also talking to me there about his latest book, Just Like You. Now, I interview people for a living, and I have to say that this guest had a profound effect on me. British-Turkish novelist Elif Shafak has published 17 books and is the most widely read author in Turkey. But when we started talking about her latest novel, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds, she told me about an object which she simply can't write without. A pair of headphones. But I almost fell off my chair when I discovered what comes out of them. Yes, I usually listen to um, industrial metal and, you know, very, yeah, aggressive music. It's like a loop. So I can listen to the same song maybe 70 times, 80 times. And that helps me to focus. People don't usually expect when they look at my writing no. or my, my personality. But I love those Viking, pagan, gothic, metal bands that not many people listen. And they're so dark, you know, gloomy. Uh, yeah. There's a part of me that loves that. Yeah, I know some of that music. Yeah. And it is challenging on the ear, I think maybe some people would describe it as. I think you can certainly say, this must freak people out. I mean, no one puts you in charge of the music at a dinner party, I'm thinking. No, they don't. They keep me away from it. Where did yeah. you discover a love for industrial death metal? Einzustender Neubarten or one of those kind of German yeah, industrial yeah, bands? Of course. Well, I mean, since my early youth, I've always loved that kind of music and there are many bands that I've listened, you know, religiously for a long time. And then I also like to discover new bands, particularly smaller Scandinavian pagan Viking bands. I, I like those as well. My children, surely they think it's it's incredibly bizarre. And you know. This is completely flipping the script on a parent-child music relationship no. where your children disapprove of your music tastes because it's too loud, too noisy, yes. and it's pagan, Viking, Scandinavian That's death true. metal. That's true. <laughs> you didn't mention any of this in the TED Talks, did no. you? <laughs> I couldn't dare. <laughs> it would have been great if you'd walked out to some of this music. Absolutely. That was brilliant. Elif really is one of the most surprising and inspirational writers and human beings. Not sure about her music taste, though, to be honest. John Boyne, whose beautiful writing spans both adult and children's novels, such as The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas and The Heart's Invisible Furies, literally covers himself in inspiration. A quote from the great American novelist John Irving is etched onto his arm. What I discovered, though, is that John had decided to ink himself with someone else's writing too. Well, yes, I have two touches, but actually one is not about books. One is for my favourite singer and one is for my favourite book. I've seen John Irving. Yeah, the book uh, is We Are All Terminal Cases, which is the last line of The Word According to Garp on my left arm. And on my right arm, it says Wave After Wave, which is a line, um, Hands of Love by Kate Bush at the back of the Hands of Love album. I've been a Kate Bush obsessive since I was 12. I am one of those, like, total Kate Bush people. 
remember when she did those shows a few years back? I think it was in 2015 yes. in London. And I got tickets for the opening night show and I was in the second row. She went down through the audience and out the door. But then she came back in and wandered through the audience. And as she passed me, you know, I held my hands up, you know, high five. And she high fived me. It's the most exciting moment of my life. Um, so I got this tattoo after that. It was my first tattoo because I just thought you know, I wanted to kind of commemorate it. Super. So if Kate Bush is listening, I love you, Kate. And please call me. <laughs> I wonder if someone somewhere has some of John's writing on their left bicep. Get in contact with us. Send a picture. Bit different to Ramesh Ranganathan's tattoo of Richard Pryor on his arm. Listen back to that Penguin podcast episode if you want to hear me absolutely roasting him for it. Now, it's not every day you get to sit in a room with one of the most famous people in the world. And so it came to pass that I got to chat to a Beatle, Sir Paul McCartney, to be precise. He was in the Penguin studio to talk about a book he wrote for his grandchildren and other people's grandchildren too, otherwise it would be rather a niche market. Hey, grand dude. He struck me as such a warm, funny and above all modest man. And so we ended up talking about the notion of fame. But what surprised me was that not only does Paul get starstruck, but he still, from time to time, doubts his own talent. Yeah, there's one or two people who uh, I would be quite nervous of. Bob Dylan actually would kind of make me a little bit, oh, my God, what am I going to say? You know, is it going to be okay? Is it going to be good? But um, I did see him. We did a, a Coachella, which was old cella, because it was like Stones, us, Neil Young. It was like older, and Bob Dylan. It was older acts. But it was great. I got to talk to Bob there, and he was he was very really nice. So I don't know why I would have been nervous, but you, you get that with some people. It is a funny thing, actually, when you think about it. What do you have to do to get secure in yourself? I mean, I would have thought I'd done enough now to just think, no, I'm cool. You know, I don't need to be nervous of anyone. But it's a human condition, I think. You just, there's just something, you know, where you sometimes think, is it good enough? Am I good enough? Have I done? I mean, John Lennon was not that secure. I remember John saying to me once, what are people going to think of me when I'm dead? You know, I wonder if they'll like me. And I said, now just you stop. Listen to me. People are going to go crazy. People love you and they're going to love you more. And obviously that's turned out to be the case. But, you know, I, I had to reassure him and say, you're great. You may not think it. Or you may worry that you're not done enough. But I said, but believe me, you have. Uh, so, you know, it can happen to anyone. Can... Have you needed that reassurance through yeah, life? Sure. Yeah, because... You've been famous for like nearly 60 years now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I, that's what I was saying. You'd think I'd know that I'd done okay. And you'd think, you know, I've, I've amassed a little pile over here of successes. So you'd think I could look at that and go, oh, I'm all right. I'm okay. It's not that easy. You know, life's not that easy. You'll be writing something. You hear, you hear about this all the time, particularly with creative artists. Yeah, absolutely. They're all just, they're writing something and they're thinking, this is no good. You know, and it may turn out to be a really great piece, but during the creative process, they're self-flagellating. Sir Paul McCartney there. Boy, oh boy, did he have a few funny words to say when he discovered I lived in Manchester. Do listen back to the whole episode if you have time. Now, journalist, podcast host and author Dolly Alderton 
loved the idea of choosing objects that inspire her work and her first novel, Ghost. Here, Sue Perkins gets to grips with one of Dolly's chosen items that may not be to everyone's taste. I want to move on to your next object, though, which is that but we've trailed it and I'm very interested now in the lukewarm glass of white wine. Yeah. Why have you chosen that? A vow that I made to myself when I had this year of writing the novel was that I was going to socialise non-stop because I truly, truly adhere to the school of thought that conversation is the workshopping for good writing. And mm. I'm very lucky that I have an abundance of friends in my life who are truthful, funny, sharp, unafraid of emotional honesty. And I was like, right, I'm going to mine, <laughs> going to mine this source. <laughs> I'm going to be at the pub with those girls three nights a week while I'm writing this book. And I really, really see it invigorate my story and invigorate my prose. And I really thank them so much because it's it was so much of that, of ghosts is it came off the back of just conversations and thinking and shared anecdotes and shared pain and shared silliness. And my friend Caroline O'Donoghue, who's a brilliant author, has this analogy that I so adhere to that she says, you need to be putting just good trees in the chipper and then good wood chip will come out. Mm. So all those nights that I had with my friends drinking not quite cold enough, overpriced white wine in the pub. It was just a forest of beautiful trees being shoved in that chipper. And what's great is not too much white wine because you remembered it all. You managed to, (laughs) either either on a conscious or subconscious level, it's just permeated and you managed to get it down on on the page. Yeah, well, the key is, is the Hemingway thing of write drunk, edit sober. I would just the next day have this sort of notebook of scrawls and I'd have to, (laughs) have to make, have to make sense of it. Hemingway has a lot to answer for. The brilliant Dolly Alderton speaking to Sue Perkins there. When researching for this podcast, we have discovered that some authors are literally ready to roll. Booker Prize winner and the first Irish laureate, Anne Enright, keeps a corkboard near her writing desk, which she covers with inspirational photos, clippings and artefacts each time she writes a new book. Anne's book, Actress, is the story of a theatre star's told through the eyes of her daughter and brought in a clipping of another famous actress who had some rather controversial things to say about hosting a dinner party. Yeah, it's a a wonderful piece of kitsch. It's a clipping. John Crawford entertaining at home. The best parties are a wild mixture of people, she says. Take some corporation presidents, add a few lovely young actresses, a bearded painter, your visiting friends from Brussels, a politician, a hairdresser, and then toss them all together. It's especially important to have all age groups. Of course, I wouldn't want to have hippies come crawling in with unwashed feet. But all the younger people I know are bright and attractive and have something to say and they dress like human beings. Another important party secret is I always add a splash of vodka to everything. No one ever knows and everyone everyone ends up having a wonderful time. You can imagine. Wow, what an... A few lovely young actresses, a bearded painter. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a, um, a Me Too recipe for disaster. It does, does, all that vodka. Yes, and young actresses and uh, yes. uh, elderly politicians. Yeah. Um Everything about this is so contrived, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you could tell basically what a nightmare she was from her tone of voice. There's so much aspiration 
in the movies and people, you know, when they went, sat in those darkened theatres, they looked up. It's a great um, description of Michael Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion, where the immigrants in Toronto, in Canada, sat in the movie theatres and mimicked all the lines of dialogue, that this was where they were going. This is where they learnt their English. And what they saw on screen was the dream. I love Dan. I mean, what's not to love? She had literally just come from doing a pub quiz with some members of U2, followed by recording an episode of Newsnight. I mean, Overachiever doesn't even come close. This next guest was literally one of the most amazing chats I've had with anyone in a long time. His way of analysing the effects of his childhood and life on his work was fascinating. But it was Howard Jacobson's story about a painting left to him by an Australian friend that had me in bits. And warning, it involves a lot of swearing, including an insult from Kylie Minogue. In a good way. You'll see what I mean. That's how men expressed love in Australia. They call one another a bastard. You get very, very drunk. You wrestle with one another on the floor. You get up. You get drunk some more. You cry a bit. I've done some crying in my life, but I've most of the crying that I've done in my life has been into the neck of Australian men. Uh, <laughs> it's the very, very strange... You bastard, Jacobson, and I say, you bastard. My lovely friend, Jeff, oh, he always called me, oh, you bastard, you mad bastard, and... He was an admirer of my early novels. He would write to me from Australia telling me how much he liked them and he got them and he was. This is genuinely a sad story. There's no one left to call me a bastard. They've gone. Sad. These are not tragic stories of men dying betimes, but they're still, you know, I'm getting much older and so a lot of my friends, uh, some of whom were that little bit older than me, are dying and it's sad. Mate... I've only just met you, so I, uh, however much it may console you, and I do quite a good Australian accent, I'm not going to call you a bastard on this podcast. I feel it would be a little bit too you premature. <laughs> Kylie Minogue called me a bastard. Why? In a wonderful circumstances. I wrote an article in which I made the joke that when I went to Australia on a ship, because you, you went everywhere by boat in 1965, they were all coming over on in the other direction from Australia. They were coming to Europe. I was going to Australia, and we hallooed one another on the high seas, and they called out, you're going the wrong way, mate. And that tickled, tickled some programme makers, and they said, that would make a terrific programme. Let's make a programme about your knowing them and about them all. But as a consequence of this, I was made Honorary Australian of the Year. And I went to, a, there was a big, big dinner at Australia House and I was honoured and given a medal, which says Honorary Australia. Why didn't I bring that? I know. Fool, why didn't I bring oh. the medal? What a fool. I can I come back? You can can you I come t- back with the medal? You, you tell us about it now. So they we'll hung, pretend it's here. It's here. They hung the medal around, oh God, they hung the medal around my neck and... They said, well, would you say a few words? So I talked about, I told them what I've just told you about and my love of Australia was based on the fact that, you know, you learn that when they call you bastard, they love you. They just love you. And bastard. So they all enjoyed that. <laughs> and I went back to sit at my table and sitting opposite me was Kylie Minogue, who was actual Australian of the year. I was just honorary Australian. And she smiled across the table at me and she parted. There was sort of plants and foliage and burning candles and things between us. She parted the foliage and moved the candle to one side and looked me deep in the eyes and said, you bastard, Howard. This has not fallen to every man. I know. Actually, I do have quite a good Australian accent, but let's move on, eh, Cobber? 
The multi-talented actress, TV writer, presenter and author Emma Kennedy of titles such as The Tent, The Bucket and Me came in to talk to her fellow comedian and friend Katie Brand. When talk turned to her latest book, The Things We Left Unsaid and the perils of being the child of someone famous, things took, um, well, see for yourself. That's the other tension in the book is that Rachel wishes that she was an artist and she has some skill but Mm. she doesn't have the confidence to pursue it because her mother is so successful. Which is also very difficult Mm. in terms of if you've got the same talent, Mm. and why wouldn't you have if it's partly inherited as a Mm. very successful parent? Mm. What are you going to do? I mean, it is, you're just sort of locked in, really. I know, it's like the the Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland thing. Mm. Although Liza Minnelli is genuinely also brilliant. She is amazing. Which is is. fortunate. I mean, some would say she's better than Garland. Controversial! (laughs) Goodness me. Controversial. That is controversial. Controversial. Especially now with the new film out. I, I was get to- your controversial opinions out now. I, I was told an amazing story about Liza Minnelli by, by the man who used to drive her around town. Gordon then. This was when she was with David Guest. He said that she would get into the car and then they'd have to wait two hours for, for David to get in. And then once he was in, she would only communicate with him via the medium of song. So, so she would go, where are we going? <laughs> We're going to the North Circular. <laughs> and apparently that's how it went. <laughs> if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I insist you do. It is very, very funny. Several times a year, the Penguin podcast is recorded in front of a large audience. My next clip is from one of those events recorded at the Lowry in Manchester with Noughts and Crosses author Mallory Blackman. Mallory's work has been hugely influential. Not only has it been recently turned into a BBC TV series, but has some very famous fans. A new BBC adaptation of Noughts and Crosses. Mm. With... Yeah. yeah. Come on. <laughs> See it. The TV. Yeah. Yeah. Are you that? Yes, you are. OK. Now, um... Now, a certain gentleman from South London who I believe did a little show at Glastonbury on the Friday <laughs> yeah. um, and made history while doing so, uh, who is a fan of yours, he's appearing in he said is. Noughts and Crosses, isn't he? He is, yes, he's in one episode. What so. can you tell us about uh, Mr Stormzy's role? Stormzy yeah. is playing a newspaper editor and he's in one episode and I could tell you more, but then I'd have to kill you all. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, so, which but, is illegal, just exactly. to be clear. So, yeah. so but yeah, so um, uh, I'm so excited about that. And I mean, Stormzy is just so wonderful. And the first time I met him, because it was at the um, South Bank Awards show, and they phoned me and said, would you, would you like to present Stormzy with his award? And I thought, he's a pop star, I am not. So why, you know, why would I do that? But they said, because he really loves your book. So I thought, oh, okay. And I thought, it's my chance to meet Stormzy, so I'm not going to say no. (laughs) So I said, so he was in a, a table behind me. And we got chatting and so forth. And he said, you know, is, um, is there any chance of me having a little part in Noughts and Crosses? So I said, let me see what I can do. <laughs> so, so I got in touch with the producer and then his people spoke to his Mammoth Productions. And he's appearing in one of the episodes, which is terrific. And I'll say something else, he's really good too. He is really good. So. Well, he's a super talented he guy. He is, he he's is. A and a super guy. lovely guy as well. Well, you, you have quite a lot in common in the sense that... When he was on my radio show, he said to me that every summer he spent in a library. Mm. You know, this is a 
kid that he said that he was obsessed with getting badges that you get when you finish reading a book. And he wanted to go back in September mm. and have more badges than anyone yeah, else. Yeah. So he, I mean, he For was... For the summer reading challenge. The summer yeah. reading challenge. Yeah. That was that kid. And I think mm. when you hear that about him, mm. you suddenly understand just why he's more focused than anyone else. He's, exactly. His, his knowledge, his ability to be able to just relate to so many different things. Exactly. And, and I think also what it shows is the fact that he has the initiative to get up and do stuff for himself and not wait for gatekeepers to open doors for yeah, him. Because no. sometimes if you're waiting for gatekeepers to open doors for you, you're going to wait an awfully long time. Mm. You want to do something, you get out there and you do it. When I go into schools and things and talk about all the rejection letters I had and I get children to kind of, or teens to guess how many rejections I had and they said two, three, and I think, oh my God, I wish. You know, and I think it is about if you want something, then go after it. Mallory Blackman is so warm and generous, but I thought she wasn't that generous when talking about taking her husband on holiday. She said one place, but I thought she said somewhere else. Listen to the podcast and you'll find out. Remember, we would love to hear what you think about this podcast. Click on the link in the notes of this episode and you could be in with a chance to win a year's supply of audiobooks. I had the pleasure of talking to a very important figure in the world of speculative fiction, otherwise known as sci-fi, neuromancer author William Gibson, the man who created the term cyberspace before there was an internet. He joined me in the studio. Tall and incredibly stylishly dressed, William proceeded to explain some of the groups of people who had taken his hugely influential first novel as one of their own. Eventually I heard from David Bowie, I got to meet meet him. He was, he was interested in Neuromancer as a potential film property. He had a, he had a development deal somewhere, as indeed did Mick Jagger. Still still later, who I got to spend a a, a very interesting afternoon with. Here, you know, so, some years after that. Interesting how he was. One of the, the best read people I'd ever discussed my fiction with. You know, understood what he what he'd read. I mean, I've, it was, it's a bit surreal. I mean, the level of that level of celebrity is, I think, almost inherently stressful. From at least at least for me, it's certainly evident that. You know, he he went to the London School of Economics, uh, and from this this conversation, but then some other inner part of me would, would suddenly scream in the most embarrassing, shrill way. Oh my God, it's Mick Jagger! And I kind of have to force it. He'd look at me like I'd be forcing it down. <laughs> yeah. so, so you didn't ever verbalize that. I mean, no, that, was, no. that was your internal. No, that was some. That was some in, internal thing. William Gibson there, and his latest brilliant book is called Agency. Now, the Penguin Podcast is awash with critically acclaimed, award-winning authors. Next up is Marlon James, whose novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, won the Booker Prize in 2015. He was, in fact, the first Jamaican author in history to make the shortlist. When we spoke to Marlon, he had just finished Black Leopard, Red Wolf, a book I found to be full of amazing, mythical, magical characters and epic battles. When it came out, it was called an African Game of Thrones. 
It was no surprise then to find that Marlon has a love for the superheroes of comic books. Comics are hugely important for lots of reasons. One, I think a lot of my action is still derived from comics. And I wish people understand when I say your war scenes feel very comic booky that I did that as a huge compliment. I'm not trying to write realistic war scenes. I haven't been in war. I can write Zap and Pow, though. It's very important in terms of that. But it also is very important in terms of how you write about misfits. I am a huge, huge, huge devotee of X-Men, and I've always said reading X-Men is a lot like being an X-Man, especially as growing up a nerd. I used to, in order to win over friends, I'd do my friends' homework for them. And then as soon as that was done, they'd go right back to calling me faggot or blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I remember reading X-Men going, holy crap, I am an X-Man. Here am I serving and protecting a world that despises me, and I'll do it again tomorrow. I'm a total mutant. <laughs> Do you still have your comic collection, Richard? They're in Jamaica and they're in a room and I'm pretty sure rats have eaten all of them by now, which will be really, really sad because I got some really big gems in there. But I still read comics. You know, I'm a huge devotee of Hellboy. No, I'm always buying comics. There is, there is a legend that's totally true about me nearly missing my own autograph line because I went to line up for Mike Mignola. <laughs> <laughs> Who does Hellboy? Well, okay, so you are a super fan then. Mm -hmm. And it really, really influenced mm -hmm. this world that you've created uh, here. Marlon James, multi-award winning novelist and academic who also happens to be a comic book super fan and a brilliant human being. The craft of writing is something we explore regularly with authors. For every writer, there is a new way into how they build their worlds. Sometimes, if we're lucky, they impart practical advice on their techniques. In this next clip, comedian, actor and author Simon Amstel talks about an object which he literally cannot do without when putting pen to paper. So let's go to your first object. Uh, oh, yes, the object. Yes, the object. And that helps you with your stand-up and all of your writing. And it is a packet of post-it notes, which you've got a packet there. I'm which, holding you're, them. which you're holding up. That's good. Holding up to the <laughs> mic. So tell us why you've chosen these. So for the book, post-it notes, very much essential, Katie. You also need a big wall. That's the other object. A big blank I, wall. You need a big blank wall. I mean, there were so many stories. And I knew that certain stories wouldn't make any sense if they came before other stories. So stories about being lonely and depressed and anxious, they, those stories would have to come before the stories about going to Peru and drinking ayahuasca and getting to the root of my depression and then finding the boyfriend that I'm with now. And do you use post-it notes in that way because you've also written feature films, obviously your stand-up, sitcom? I think I discovered this post-it note process from... <laughs> Um, You're going to be the face of post-it notes after this. God, I hope They're something going to be happens. On the <laughs> Jeremy Dyson, who is in the League of Gentlemen, mm -hmm. he was the script editor on Grandma's House, and he taught Dan Swimer and I, who I wrote it with. I mean, it's so basic, but that each scene has to be doing something. Just explain what that advice was. There's a recent film, which is called Benjamin, and uh, it's quite personal. And uh, what I thought I could do when I was writing that film was just just write things that had happened to me mm. <laughs> just keep writing stuff that had happened to me and eventually it will be an hour and a half long and that would be enough and that doesn't work what the post-it notes help you do is really clarify what the scene is doing so you might write a scene where there's a couple of people doing the washing up together and they have a conversation about 
Jesus. And uh, this is nothing that I would ever write. I love, I love this, though. I love the, 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 the genius at work. Yeah. And so Jeremy Dyson would say, what's happening in that scene? Does the story move forward? Do we learn anything about the character? And you write down on the post-it note, hopefully you write something down like, Barry reveals to Tom that he is his uncle. <laughs> And that's the story. But, but there was also another bit, I think, Jeremy, I remember him saying to me, it was about what does the person want and what happens if it doesn't happen or oh, what happens yes. if they don't get it? Yeah. And so that moves you on to the next scene. So if Barry wants to tell Tom he's his uncle, so he wants to tell him and he wants Tom to be pleased. Right. What happens if Tom isn't pleased? And then that moves you on to a new scene. Because I have the same trouble. I love writing dialogue and then I slightly lose track of that I'm supposed to be telling a story. Yeah. And I can't just have people idly chatting for an hour and a half. Exactly. However funny it might be. And if you can't write down what happened in that scene on a post-it note, then it isn't a scene. Mm -hmm. It's just some chatting. Yes. That's why... Post-it notes. Post-it notes. (laughs) Excellent. The irrepressible Simon Amstel there talking to Katie Brand. Now, I have to say, meeting this last guest was a big deal for me. He's the lead singer of one of the first bands I fell in love with. The band's book, Before We Was We, is a fascinating account of a group of kids who, in spite of their sometimes difficult upbringings and misadventures, became enormously successful, playing stadiums, on the roof of Buckingham Palace and even at the Olympics. The band is madness, and I talked to the brilliant and hilarious Suggs. Now, I have to say, having done quite a few of these Penguin podcasts so far and people have brought in a whole plethora of different objects, no one as yet has brought in... (laughs) teeth right no one has yet has brought in a plaster cast from some gnashes plaster cast of north london gnashes yeah yeah i mean it's very obscure but uh another of our big breaks was um these belong to d crooks by the way in case <laughs> he's ever looking for them he's got his name on the back oh. the story is in those days there was a bit of room to maneuver you know you could squat in buildings you know there were there were there were buildings you could rehearse in and one of the places we started rehearsing was it was in the basement of a dentist surgery in Finchley Road. Yes, yeah, surrounded by the plaster cast of North London Nashers. And, uh, yeah, it was just great because we sat up there and they just let us stay for as long as we wanted down there because we'd rehearse in the evening when it was shut. And it was a dentist chair, I remember, that I used to sit in thinking I was king of all I surveyed. <laughs> Why was that space important to you? Well, it was the first time we could set up our equipment and leave it there, you know, and we had a tape recorder and start to... Because up to that point, we were in and out of old youth clubs or people's bedrooms, you know, it was very disparate. So this was the first time we kind of settled down and got some kind of continuity, basically. And that made you feel like a serious job, I guess, for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lyrics and all that on the walls and, and, and as I say, tapes of what we'd done the day before. And we started to really take it seriously at that point. And in fact, and that's when Clive Langer, who ended up producing all our records, came to see us. And that's when things really started to take off. It nearly didn't because you were sacked at one point, weren't <laughs> yes, you? Yes. Can we talk about why you were sacked? Yeah, nearly. yeah. I mean, at that point, you know, this is just leading up to the dentist surgery. They were starting to rehearse more and more. And I, I was a big football fan. I used to go to Chelsea every Saturday. And they started rehearsing on Saturday afternoons. And I started running out of excuses for why I wasn't turning up. So, yeah, then suddenly, unfortunately, somebody saw me on Match of the Day. You know, they have the highlights. And there I was in the shed when I was supposed to be at the rehearsals. And Mike sacked me, our keyboard player. 
Then I saw an advert in Melody Maker with Mike's phone number. Uh, North London band seek professionally minded singer. So I rang him up and I put on a posh accent. I said, hello, I'm just inquiring about the job of singer in your band. Just out of interest, what's happened to the old one? We had to let him go. We had an attitude problem. <laughs> he was always at the football. I said, Mike, you bastard. <laughs> he said, no, Suggs, listen, we could do with you back in the band, actually. I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, doing what? He said, playing drums. I said, playing drums? What's happened to John? He said, oh, he's auditioning for singer. I said, you can go fuck yourself. The next thing, now I am playing drums in Mike's bedroom very badly. <laughs> but fortunately, John, who was the drummer, John Asler, who features quite a lot, and then he became the manager, became the singer briefly, but then he went off to Ireland for a few weeks, and it turned out I was the only one who knew the words. So I was back in the band, which was a very big moment for me. It was so good that I managed to do that interview without sounding like this for the entirety of it. I love you, Suggs. We actually ended up going out for a drink afterwards and I couldn't quite believe that I was in a pub with Suggs. But that story, I'll leave for my memoirs. Well, that brings me to the end of this special edition of the Penguin Podcast. If you've missed any of the episodes featured, they're all there waiting to be downloaded for free. Please do remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And do please rate, comment. Audiobooks for all the guests featured today are available from Audible, Apple Books and all audiobook retailers. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends, even tell some of your enemies, they deserve a lift up in life. And see you very soon. The Book of Echoes by Rosanna Amaker Worlds collide as a young girl from a faraway village finds herself in Brixton of 1981. This is a London full of police brutality and on the brink of riot. But the journey of two distant souls coming together gives way to healing and triumph over adversity. This morning, at eight o'clock, I saw Dolores open her eyes and smile. That smile started from deep inside and it spread out to the tips of her fingers, to her toes and the roots of her hair. Her spirit pushed the weight in her heart pushed it aside like the great man Hercules. And that joy, that release, shone out like early morning sunshine. The audiobook edition of The Book of Echoes is available to download now.